and open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we will be taking a look this morning at verses 45 to 50. Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 50. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is the word of our Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The most anguished words in all of Scripture were spoken in these hours. As Christ on the cross cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As one old pastor, considering and commenting on these words, said that they present to us, and I quote, one of the most impenetrable mysteries of the entire gospel. These words, they present to us a bottomless chasm that no matter how deeply we understand them, no matter how deeply we descend in our attempt to grasp them, there is still underneath an eternal, infinite depth yet left to plumb. And as I spent time this week meditating on and studying and trying to grasp more deeply everything that was occurring in all of these last hours of our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's earthly life. I simply, there came moments when I simply had to push my chair back from my desk and agree wholeheartedly with that statement. There is an impenetrable mystery here that I can't even begin to comprehend. None of us can fully grasp everything that Jesus endured, everything that he suffered during these six hours on the cross. They are indeed, the depths of his suffering are indeed a mystery that we can't fully grasp. And while we can preach and teach and study and speak about Christ's agony on the cross, we with our limited understandings and we with our finite minds only ever scratch the surface of the anguish that our Lord Jesus Christ faced on that cross in order to save you and I, to deliver you and I who believe in his name. And as we speak about 
And as we consider these final hours of Christ, as he is suspended on the cross, as we consider the yielding up of his spirit back to his Father, know this, and I'm going to repeat this because I think we need to grasp and understand this, that no matter how much we say, no matter how much we understand, we remain like Job who declared to his three friends in the midst of his sufferings that no matter how much he knew about God, no matter how much he understood about the majesty and mystery and wonders of God, he said this, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And as we explore these verses this morning, the forsakenness of Christ and all that it means, or at least what we, can, what we can comprehend. Again, there is much that we cannot say or adequately describe in ways that do them justice. What we can attempt to do this morning is detail the outskirts of what took place on the cross. And as we do, praise Christ, exalt Christ, magnify and ascribe all glory and adoration to our God who went to lengths that we can't even begin to imagine to save our souls. And know this, that when you and I are around the throne of God in eternity future, we will consistently be growing in our knowledge of everything Christ did and increasing in our praise in forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We who are, as David so aptly put it, worms, unworthy of so great an honor, unworthy of so magnificent a sacrifice, unworthy of so awesome an honor, Jesus, in order to redeem you, to deliver you, persevered through and endured a degree of distress and misery and torment at the cross that none of us can truly wrap our minds around. So let us try to understand what we can this morning and let us extol the greatness of God for everything we can't. So our text begins in verse 45 and we read, Now from the sixth hour... So by the Jewish reckoning of time, the sixth hour means noon, 12 p.m. noon. And at this time, by the sixth hour, Jesus had been on the cross for three hours already. Mark 15, verse 25 tells us that it was the third hour, meaning 9 a.m., when they crucified Jesus. So at noon now, Jesus has been on the cross for three hours. In total, Christ was on the cross for six hours. And this six-hour period, on this day, 2,000 years ago, marks what is for you and I, for the entirety of the cosmos, the most significant and momentous hours in all of creation's history. In these hours, the Son of God the second person of the Trinity, truly divine, who took on flesh and made his dwelling among us as truly human, Jesus Christ, the only truly righteous, good, and innocent man to ever live, as the Apostle Peter put it, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He did this, in our place, he bore our sins for us on our behalf. 
He did this as our substitute, taking upon himself what we rightly and justly deserve. And as Jesus remained fixed to the cross for these six agonizing hours, we see a tiny glimpse of everything he experienced, everything he endured to save you and I, to save us miserable sinners. Again, for the, at the risk of over-repeating, there is absolutely no way for us to plumb the depths of his sufferings. From the physical pain to this, his being forsaken by the Father as the Father vented and poured out the necessary righteous and just wrath of God upon the Son on that cross. As Jesus fulfilled the task that had been given to him to seek and to save the lost, to give his own life as a ransom for many, to lay down his life for you, his sheep. And Jesus endured all of this tribulation, all of this affliction. He paid the debt that we owed for our sin so that we might be, so that we would be forgiven, all of us who turned to him in faith. And he did this so that one day he would conduct all of you who, be, who belong to him by grace through faith. You, his blessed and beloved children, he will come and bring you, conduct you into the sublime and magisterial room that he has prepared for you in his heavenly mansion. So last week, we flew over the first three hours of Christ's crucifixion, the hours of 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. It was during these three hours, as the morning sun shone brightly upon the land, as it had always done, that three separate groups of people, the passers-by, meaning those who were entering and exiting the holy city of Jerusalem, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people, and, at least for a short time, the two criminals that had been crucified with Jesus on his right-hand side and on his left-hand side, all of these were mocking him. And they were all tempting him with the same satanic temptation that he had faced at the outset of his, just before his earthly ministry. The same test was brought to him again as these people spoke the very satanic words in chapter 27, verse 40. If you are the Son of God, come down now from the cross. And again in 27, verse 42, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. So even now, in these last hours, Satan sought to turn Jesus into a different sort of Messiah, a Messiah who aligned with the popular Jewish conception and idea of what Messiah should be, what he should be coming to do, which is liberate Israel from the clutches of Roman oppression. And while Jesus will return one day with a rod of iron as king and he will rule over all the nations, it wasn't at this moment that he was committed to that. And had Jesus taken Satan up on this test, had he listened to the mockeries of the people, he very well would have established and ruled over an earthly kingdom from a throne in Jerusalem. And the Jewish peoples would, at least for the duration of each man and woman's earthly life, they would have enjoyed national peace and prosperity. However, the result would have the wider result would have been that every single one of us would be left in our sins and damned to an eternity of God's wrath in hell. 
Jesus would not let that happen. And so Jesus remained on that cross. Jesus didn't heed their requests for proof of his identity. And as he listened to the mockery of these three groups, the Gospels record Jesus speaking three times in these three hours. Rather than coming down from the cross, Jesus will display in his words on the cross the purpose of it. While affixed to the cross, Jesus speaks first as the Roman soldiers attempted to humiliate him by casting lots for his clothing right in front of him as he hung there on that cross. They gambled right in front of him for his clothes. And Jesus prayed for them, saying in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And second, at the repentance of one of the criminals that had been crucified beside him, one of them turned to him at some point during these three hours and said, Jesus, Luke 23, 42, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus Loving this criminal's soul responded in Luke 23, 43, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And finally, Jesus established the tight-knit community and connection that ought to exist between all of us believers when he saw Mary, his mother, and John, one of his disciples, standing nearby. And he said to Mary, Woman, behold your son. And he said to John, behold your mother. And John responded to these words by bringing Mary into his own home. Now during these first three hours, as all of these things are taking place, again, the sun shone throughout the land as usual. Nothing seemingly out of the ordinary took place. At least it seemed that way. But everything changed at the arrival of the ninth hour. At the, at the arrival of the ninth hour, when noon came, as, after Christ had been on that cross for three hours, something extraordinary happened. Look at verse 45 again. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. As Luke describes it in Luke 23, 45, the sun's light failed at about noon on this day. A thick, supernatural darkness fell over the land. And this is noteworthy because throughout Scripture, the arrival of such darkness over the land indicates that the moment, the time for the judgment and wrath of God to fall has arrived. We read in the prophets, for example, about a day that is coming, the day of the Lord, a day of devastating judgments that will be poured out upon the earth, a day when the Lord's anger is kindled and it is accompanied by darkness. Prophet Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 5 said, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by the clouds. And again, in Isaiah chapter 13, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. 
and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. And yet another example from Zephaniah. The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. So while you see, while the cross is not the day of the Lord spoken of by the prophets here, all such instances of the Lord's wrath falling upon the earth in this manner, his perfectly just judgments discharged upon the earth against sin is accompanied by the sign of darkness over the land. Widespread darkness is connected to judgment poured out against sin. And here at the ninth hour, as Jesus hangs on the cross and the light of the sun is blotted out and darkness overtakes the land for three full hours, the divine judgment of the Father now falls upon the Son and He absorbs our sin in our place during those three long, excruciating and agonizing hours. And if you notice, no gospel describes for us what Jesus went through during these three hours of darkness. There really are not any words in all of earth's languages that could sufficiently declare and describe the experience of Jesus during these three hours. There are not enough words, not enough pictures, not enough illustrations to describe the suffering and the torment and the anguish. And no gospel records him saying anything during these three dark hours. He only breaks his silent agony at the ninth hour, at the end of these three hours of darkness. It is here, it is now, it is during these three hours of darkness that Christ truly suffers unimaginable calamities. The calamities of Isaiah 53 are coming to Fruition in him now, it is during these three hours that the Lord laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. It is during these hours that the Lord struck Christ for the transgressions of the people, Isaiah 53, 8. It is in these three hours when the Lord crushed his own son and put him to grief, Isaiah 53, 10. It is during these hours when Jesus bears the sin and the iniquities of the many and makes intercession for the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 11 and 12. It is the sorrow, the grief, the affliction, the crushing sense of forsakenness and abandonment by his Father. It is during these hours that Christ drinks the cup, the cup of God's wrath. It's these hours that Jesus had been praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane just a few hours earlier. If you remember, as Christ prayed with an indescribable intensity, Luke records it as like this. Being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And he said, My Father, 
My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, the prayer in the garden here wasn't simply about the physical pain and afflictions that Jesus would face at the hands of men. It wasn't simply about the scourging and the whipping and the flogging and the slaps and the spitting and the physical pains of the cross. Sure, these are included, but it also speaks to, I believe, to an even greater degree than the physical pain, these hours of forsakenness by his Father. And here lies the incomprehensible mystery and that we cannot begin to grasp the distress of our Lord Jesus Christ during these three hours. We can't begin to understand the pain and the loneliness and the despair and everything that was going through him as he experienced disconnection from his heavenly Father in these hours. Think about it. For eternity past... The persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had existed in a perfect relationship of love and harmony and rapturous joy, giving and receiving that perfect love and glory and joy from one to another. There had never been a time, not one single second ever, when that fellowship had ever been broken when the bond between them was anything other than perfect happiness and joy until these hours, until these three dark hours. For the first and only time in eternity, Jesus experienced not just some small shift in his relationship to the Father, which itself would be infinitely and indescribably terrible. No, He, for your sake and for my sake, was forsaken by his Father. As he bore in himself the wrath of the Father to pay the penalty for our sins, to pay the cost for our redemption. And it was at the end of these three dark hours in his anguish that we read in verse 46, that he cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In these hours, the one who knew no sin became sin. He became the object of God's holy hatred so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah! In these hours, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Amen. And all of the sufferings of every single human being who has ever lived combined can't begin to describe the degree and the depths of everything Jesus experienced during these hours of forsakenness. In these hours, Jesus endured something he'd never before dealt with in all of eternity past and never will again for eternity future. He was forsaken by his Father in heaven. And you, believer, consider what you're hearing now. Meditate on what you are hearing right now. The cross of Christ has dimensions to it that we haven't begun to unpack yet. 
with all the songs we've sing, we've, we sing about it, all the books throughout history that have been written about it, we have not even peeled the first layer of the onion. Because Christ remained on that cross, bearing the Father's wrath for those three long, excruciating hours, you and I can be saved. He bore those hours for our sake. And while he hung there on that cross, he bore the very torments of hell itself. We like to speak of hell sometimes as the place where we are separated from God, as though God is not there. That's not true. Hell is the place where the wrath of God is poured out upon unrepentant sinners for eternity. And Jesus, during these three hours, suffered that incomprehensible agony as he absorbed the terrible indignation of God for your sin and for mine. And as Jesus finally cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you hear? Can you get some small glimpse of the agony of our Lord Jesus Christ as he expresses his sufferings in that cry. As he cries out during this moment when he is now facing for the first time in eternity the loss of perfect communion with his Father. And even more than that, consider this, it's not just that he lost the perfect communion with his Father in that moment, but he became the object of the Father's holy wrath. Hear him as he cries out from the cross and recognize once again that the cry expresses a pain and expresses an anguish that we can't begin to understand. Matthew tells us that Jesus cried out, verse 46, with a loud voice. That means with an extra loud, with a surprisingly loud and intense voice. Meditate on these moments in Christ's passion and try in your own mind, to hear for yourself the surprisingly loud and vigorous shout from the cross. Consider in your own mind, try to, in some small measure, sense the pain and the anguish that's behind that cry. And when you feel some of the weight of what's happening, remember this, that's just the outskirts it's the outskirts of what Christ suffered on your behalf and in your place. Stop for a second and consider what Christ is enduring for you. And when you have a sense of the pain, add to it infinity and eternity. And worship the Lord. Because we can sometimes fixate right on the physical pains and miss or overlook this cry of forsakenness which points to a much deeper, more potent affliction. As you consider these things, I want you to consider two thoughts that go along with them. First, the agony of Christ as he endures the Father's wrath on the cross ought to help us understand the nature of hell a little bit more. Hell is the place that is reserved for those who die apart from salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Hell is the place, again, not where one is separated from God, but where God himself pours out his furious, holy wrath upon all who refused to repent and believe the gospel during their lifetime. Hell is the place where the unrepentant sinner must, him or herself, pay the debt of sin, which, because all sin is committed against an eternally, infinitely holy God, the debt incurred by that sin is infinite and eternal, and for that reason, hell and its torments are infinite and eternal. Second, the agony and perseverance of Christ on the cross for these hours ought to, for you, believer, son and daughter of the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to encourage you. Encourage you with the knowledge that Jesus did all of this for you. That he did this with your face in mind. With your soul in mind. He did this because he loves you. And if you're one of those who at times can doubt God's love for you, believer in Christ, consider what Jesus suffered on the cross and remember that he did it for you. He endured that anguish for you. And if that doesn't show you how much he loves you, how committed he is to saving you, how he will hold you in his hand from the moment you profess faith in him until eternity future... I don't know what will. Jesus loves you, son and daughter. If he went to such great lengths to pay the price for your sin, to pay your debt, to absorb the wrath of God for you in your place as your substitute, as the Apostle Paul said in his letter to the Romans, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? Amen. Amen. This is why Jesus suffered this withdrawal of perfect joyful fellowship with his father. This is why Jesus for these hours took upon himself the inflamed rage of God poured out on him to pay the debt for the sins of his people. Now add to that mystery this fact, that while Jesus was forsaken by the Father, as the Father turned his face away from the Son, because the Son became sin for us, the Son became that which the Lord's eyes are too pure to look upon, even in this moment, while the Son experiences the forsakenness of the Father, the Father still perfectly loves the Son. Talk about a mystery even as he pours out his wrath upon the Son. The great pastor, Charles Spurgeon, was preaching on this text, and he considered, he thought and pondered the, the question, why? Why have you forsaken me? And he thought and, and described the answer that he thinks Jesus might have received in that moment from the Father. As he cried out, why, why, to what end, for what purpose? Spurgeon said it beautifully, and I quote, We can imagine the answer to Jesus' question. Why? Because, my son, you have chosen to stand in the place of guilty sinners. 
You who have never known sin have made the infinite sacrifice to become sin and receive my just wrath upon sin and sinners. You do this because of your great love and because of my great love. And then the Father might give the Son a glimpse of his reward. The righteously robed multitude of God's people on heaven's golden streets, all of them singing their Redeemer's praise, and all of them chanting the name of the Lord and the Lamb, end quote. And while Jesus did experience a forsakenness at the cross, he did experience an affliction that is beyond our comprehension. The fact that he cried out these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which is the opening line of Psalm 22.1, indicates that in the throes of his suffering, Christ's eye was on the victory. The victory that he would soon win. You see, Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. And it was written well before the invention of crucifixion as a method for execution. And yet, even so, it describes almost perfectly the realities of Christ's own crucifixion. From the mockery of the peoples in Psalm 22.7 to the exposure of his bones during the scourging in Psalm 22.16 to the casting of lots for his clothing in Psalm 22.18 to the piercing of his hands and his feet in Psalm 22.16 and more. The psalm itself speaks of the righteous man's sense of being forsaken by God. And in Christ, the words of this psalm find their ultimate fulfillment because he is truly, the truly innocent and righteous sufferer who is at this moment forsaken by God. And to look at the entirety of the psalm while it begins with this cry of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It concludes with wonderful cries of victory and vindication. And as Jesus shouted these words at this moment with a loud voice, in the depths of his anguish, the rest of the psalm lingers in the air for all who know it to consider. As he is about to breathe his last, Jesus, even as he shouts in agony, still knows and declares that victory and vindication will come on the other side of these dark hours. And while some of them, namely the chief priests and the religious leaders, might have, ought to have understood what Christ was declaring when he shouted these words on the cross. It would seem that a number of bystanders completely missed the point. Because when they heard the shout of Jesus, they responded by saying what we see in verse 47. This man's calling Elijah. They seemingly have no clue, right? And while there are many and varied ways that we can misunderstand the significance of what's happening at the cross and what this cry of Jesus meant, these bystanders, they take top prize. Because when Jesus cried out these words, he cried them out in a language called Aramaic. Aramaic was the common language in the region of Judea in the first century, not nearly as widely spoken as Hebrew or Greek. Even Matthew takes pains, right, to translate the Aramaic for us in his gospel. So as Jesus cried out in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, what does that sound like? 
seems the people thought he was crying out for Elijah rather than to his God. But even so, it was at this moment, after Jesus, according to John, John 19, 28, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. So in these second three hours, Jesus will say three things also. In the first three hours, he says three things. In the second three hours, he says three things. The first is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The second is, I thirst. Actually, it's four things. Into your hands I commit my spirit. No, three things. So he said, I thirst... And it was a fulfillment of scripture, according to John, that scripture being Psalm 69, 21, where David said, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And as Jesus said, I thirst, we read in Matthew that one of them, one of the bystanders, ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. It's unclear whether this was an act of compassion or an act of further humiliation. Most commentators believe that the particular wine that was given to Jesus in this moment was the cheap wine that Roman soldiers themselves drank, highly diluted with water, good for quenching thirst. And as this bystander pressed the sponge soaked with sour wine to the lips of Christ, the other bystanders actually tried to stop him from doing it, preferring to leave Jesus suffering to see if Elijah would indeed come to save him. Right? You see that in verse 49. As the one runs to put the sponge, you read, the other said, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And as the crowds waited for Elijah, Jesus once again cried out in verse 50 with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now once again, hear that. It's not, a, it's not a small detail that Christ cries out with a loud voice. This is not the cry from the mouth of a man whose life is slowly draining and ebbing away. These are not the cries of, a, of an exhausted man who is passively losing his life as he is there on the cross. This is not some feeble whimper Remember, Jesus Christ is the one who lays down his life. He has authority to lay it down and authority to take it back up. No one takes it from him. He lays it down voluntarily to save his children. And even now, after six hours on this cross, even now, after all that he has endured, even now, he is still full of vitality and energy, so much so that he cries out again with a surprisingly loud voice. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew, according to John's gospel, that everything had now been accomplished. The penalty for sin after these three hours of darkness has now been paid. The work that had been given him to complete is finished, and now he will give his life. He will give up, yield up his spirit to give up his life as a ransom for many. And Luke tells us that part of the cry that Jesus shouted in this moment was this in Luke 23, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now notice, earlier on when Jesus calls out to the Father, how does he refer to him? My God, 
My God, why have you forsaken me? That is the only time that Jesus, in a direct address to his heavenly Father, calls him anything other than Father. In that moment, in those moments of forsakenness, and now that it is finished, he addresses his Father again with the familial word, Father. You see, the peaceful confidence of Psalm 22's victorious words now wash over him because of what he has done, because of what he has accomplished. Psalm 22, 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And knowing this, knowing these words of victory, Jesus now commits himself into his Father's care, into his Father's hands as he yields up his spirit as he returns to the perfect loving communion with his Father. But before he did that, John tells us that he also said, in John 19, 30, it is finished. And at this moment, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. The cup of God's wrath has been drank down to the very bottom. The road to forgiveness has been blazed and paved, and all who would turn to Jesus in faith will be forgiven and will be saved from the penalty and the wages of their own sin, from that awful and terrible eternity that is hell. And after shouting these words, Jesus yielded up his spirit, verse 50. Jesus breathed his last the single most important breath in creation's history occurs right here in the very last breath of the Lord Jesus Christ. As this breath left his lungs, he truly gave up his life for the many. The perfect law of God has now been completely fulfilled in him and atonement for sin has been accomplished. And this solves the cosmic problem. The cosmic problem is this. How can a holy God forgive the sins of his human creation? Consider for a moment the problem of forgiveness. The Lord reveals in Proverbs 17, 15, that he who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Did you hear that? He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord? Yes. To simply forgive evil and wickedness with no justice and no penalty enacted against that sinfulness is, according to Scripture, both an injustice and an abomination. And for the Lord himself to simply dismiss sin, to declare a sinner righteous without that sin being paid for or punished appropriately is unjust and evil, and deep down we all know this. Think about it. If someone, for example, murdered someone we love dearly, and the guilty party stands before the judge for sentencing, and you wait in the back to hear the sentence, and the judge says, I declare you righteous and innocent. You're free to go. 
I don't think any of us would stand up and clap and say, yes, justice has been served today. So you see, you've sinned, I have sinned, over and over and over again against the most righteous and holy God. And our sin demands that justice be served. How can God do this? Humanity, see, we, get it, we do it the opposite way. We tend to wonder, how could a good and loving God send sinners to hell? But God in Scripture reveals himself as one committed to addressing an even greater problem. How can he, the perfect Holy One, without himself becoming a God of injustice, reconcile sinners to himself? How can he forgive them without violating his own perfect, righteous justice and holiness? How can he do it? The old English pastor and theologian John Stott said about this, forgiveness is for God the profoundest of problems. Have you ever thought about this? We might think that forgiveness should be an automatic for God. But consider, for example, the example, uh, consider the example of David and Bathsheba with me. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, the prophet Nathan approaches David to rebuke him for his sins. And David repented of his grievous sins, saying, I have sinned against the Lord. And the prophet Nathan, speaking on behalf of God, said to David these words, The Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Is this, in that moment, justice? Think about it. Uriah, one of David's closest confidants, one of David's mighty men, one of those men who risked his life over and over and over again to protect David as David fled from King Saul's murderous attempts. This man, Uriah, one of David's closest confidants, is dead because he is the victim of David's attempt to cover up another wicked sin, the sin of taking that, man's, that very man's wife into his own bedroom and impregnating her in an adulterous affair while Uriah, her husband, was off fighting for David's sake. Can it simply be that we say, ah, well, poor Uriah, Let's move on. Let's forget what happened here. In what court could this be considered justice? David's adultery with Bathsheba and his subsequent move to ensure that Uriah is killed. How could that just be set aside by a simple, your sin has been put away? No, that sin must be dealt with. And the only reason that God could at this moment set that sin aside is because Jesus will bear David's sin in himself. He will bear that sin on the cross and God's perfect justice will be poured out for that dastardly deed upon the shoulders of Christ. It would be paid for by Jesus during these dark hours at Golgotha. If it had not, God would be guilty of injustice which is what the Apostle Paul makes clear in his letter to the Romans when he wrote this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, means declared righteous, 
by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, that word means an appeasement of God's necessary justice, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And why did God put Jesus forward? Listen to Paul as he continues. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. David and Bathsheba, for example. He set them aside. He passed over them. And so Jesus must be put forward to deal with those sins. It says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might, that God might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see those two words? Just and justifier. Jesus was put forward by God to show his righteousness because he had passed over the former sins of old-time saints. And had the sins of God's saints in the past simply remained passed over, that would reveal God to be an unrighteous God, an unjust God. And so in the cross of Christ, the penalties for sin being poured out on Christ, God reveals himself to be just in that sin and guilt is paid for. It is punished, never simply swept under the rug, never minimized, but shown to be completely evil, wicked, and abominable. In Christ, not only is God shown to be just, but he is also shown to be the justifier. Meaning, he can now, because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, be righteous in forgiving all of us who turn to Jesus in faith. Because God's justice has been satisfied by the work of Christ. While the shed blood of Christ does indeed save all who believe and we praise God for it, it also declares God to be perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly wise, and perfectly righteous in that the sins of mankind do not go unpunished. They will either be punished as the individual human rejects Christ and bears them, him or herself, in hell for eternity. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ this morning, that is your eternal destination at this very moment. You will bear the justice of God for your own sins. The wrath of God will fall upon you forever and ever and ever into eternity. It's a debt you cannot pay. It's a debt only Christ can pay. Or your sins will be punished and dealt with in Christ by grace through faith in his name. At the cross, this cosmic problem of how a holy God can be merciful to sinners like you and I is solved by his perfect wisdom. As our Lord Jesus Christ, for our sake, endured these dark hours of forsakenness and wrath in our place. The words of the Apostle Paul resound from Romans chapter 5. God shows his love for us in this that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we have now been justified, declared righteous, by his blood, meaning his atoning death, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. In closing, two thoughts. Lost sinners in this auditorium this morning. Tremble at the words that you have just heard. Hear, turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, or you will face the eternal consequences for your rejection of so great and wonderful a gift that is being held out to you and offered to you right now. And believer, child of the Lord Jesus Christ, hear the words that have been spoken to you this morning and rejoice! The Lord Jesus Christ did all of this for your sake. Your iniquities, your sins, every single last one of them have been laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he himself has borne them in your place. And you're forgiven. You are forgiven. And you will one day be with him in glory forever. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that all of us in here this morning could be saved, redeemed, delivered, and promised eternity with him. Amen. Father, you are so good to us, and I thank you for this text this morning where we tried to understand the outskirts of what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ endured on that cross. It will be something that we magnify and exalt you for for eternity future. As we learn more and more with each passing hour, Father, you are great and you are greatly to be praised. And Lord Jesus Christ, we fall on our knees in gratitude and thanksgiving for all that you have done for us, unworthy as we are, because for some reason you loved us. And for some reason you continue to love us. And for some reason you want us with you forever. What an amazing joy and privilege. What an amazing inheritance that you have so graciously provided to us who believe in your name. Thank you. Praise you. Amen.